Now, in my school, I have to teach a class called Wellbeing. Um, it used to be called PSHE, uh, Personal, Social and Health Education. And it deals with matters like drinking, smoking, drugs, bullying, cyber safety, basically all the things that aren't taught in every other class. Uh, but uh, what a healthy or even unhealthy teenager should be talk taught about. Now in some of the modules we have to grapple with identity and look at what's um, and uh, uh, what uh, look at what's helpful um, to uh, I and it's sorry and it's helpful to identify what's important to us. So to help us with that. Um, there's a little exercise that we use where we put ourselves at the center, very selfishly, put ourselves at the center, me, and then around that we draw bubbles in decreasing size. So in big bubbles next to you, you would write, uh, write um, what is most important to you, and then in decreasing sizes, smaller bubbles as to the, the lesser things important to us. And this helps us to identify our priorities. So if you've got, for example, family as a big bubble next to you, is it that you spend time with your family? You can see why this is important. Because what is important to us should represent our priorities. And we should prioritize those things that are important to us. So it might be work, or it might be security. So you might want to try and make sure you get a good job and money because that's important to us. It could be friends. So the question would be, if your friends is one of those big bubbles, why aren't you spending more time with your friends? Um, uh, now, um, I wonder if you were to put bubbles around you. I wonder whether you could think of the top three bubbles, or the, uh, the largest three bubbles. Would it be your family, or your job, or friends? I know for some people it will be their children. Would it be God? Would it be church? Would it be the time you spend playing golf? I know that's very important to some of my colleagues. Um, the first thing they do after they finish work is to go off and play golf. Is it politics? From the amount of time that my friends are talking about politics, it's obviously one of the most important things to them. Obviously it's more important at some, sometimes like now with what's going on in Britain and in the US and other times it's less important. It's actually really revealing about some, someone the things that are most important to them and the things that they prioritize. Now obviously as followers of Christ we should be looking to God uh, as a priority as we grow. God and his church will grow and become more central to us as we grow as Christians. The question whether we prioritize him and make him central to what we do will grow in us, will become more important in us. And so let's have a look at how today's passage, we see how this relates to what's going on in Mark. So we're looking at Mark's gospel. Last week, Billy had a look at a verse 1 to 13 and the importance of John the Baptist and the importance of the gospel, and we're going to continue with that theme. So we're reading from verse 14. So uh, Mark's, uh, Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, and we're going to be reading through to the end. 
I'm going to read the titles from the, um, the ESV because I think it breaks it up nicely, but uh, they weren't there in the original text, so it's up to you whether you ignore those or not. Jesus begins his ministry. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Pass, it, uh, Jesus calls his, uh, the, the first disciples. Passing through the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went to, uh, Jesus heals the man with an unclean spirit. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have, I, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out of the loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus heals men. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lift her, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick and with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, for they knew him. Jesus preaches in Galilee. And rising very early in the morning, when it was still dark, he departed and went out to the desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon those, uh, and those who were with him ser uh, searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everybody is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus cleanses a leper. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. 
And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer your cleansing with Moses, uh, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you are with us as you've promised, revealing your word, and help us to not just take it as, as knowledge or understanding in our minds, but uh, applying it in our hearts and in our lives, that we can be changed to become more like you. Lord, we pray that we can prioritize you, we can become more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage starts with Jesus uh, starting his ministry and proclaiming the gospel. Repent and be saved. Otherwise, obviously that is the most important thing to Jesus. For without it, none of us would be here. If Jesus wasn't proclaiming the gospel, if Jesus didn't then die to confirm the gospel, none of us would be here. We see that Jesus then chooses his first disciples, and that may be more of a surprise to us, because who does he choose? He chooses fishermen. He chooses Simon, who is, becomes Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These would be rough men, uh, not well educated, probably coarse in their language, they certainly weren't men who would be well-educated, well-spoken, or used to public speaking. They wouldn't be used to engaging in arguments and discussions about why people needed Jesus. And they were from Galilee. We see in John's Gospel, Nathaniel asks the question, what good can come from Nazareth? Nazareth is uh, in Lower Galilee. Galilee is about as far from Jerusalem, the center of learning, the center of culture, the center of excellence in Israel as you could imagine. Galilee was a, seen to be a backwater. They would have had a different accent. I don't know whether you, uh, uh, I don't know in Malaysia where the kind of like the colloquial accents are. Um, in kind of in Britain, you've probably got you know, some people in London might look frown upon maybe someone with a Yorkshire accent or a you know, Cornish accent. You know, I know my friends have, you know, one of my friends from Cornwall often jokes about herself and her friends who, and she says, my, my lover, you know, because it's kind of a bit of a, a joke of, of the, the accent. But this is what the Galileans would have had. They would have had a different accent. They would have been rough people. Far from the people you would choose to start your church. I wonder who you would choose to start your church. Maybe a politician, a Pharisee. Maybe someone well respected in the community. Maybe uh, like a doctor or a teacher. Maybe someone who uh, is used to influencing people. Like a lawyer. All of the kind of good jobs that... Uh, these Asian parents love to make sure their children are trained up in tiger mums and 
you know, want their children to be the doctor, the lawyer, the teacher, the, you know, the good job. And that, I, I know that's important, you know, to make sure that they have a good, secure job, but well-respected as well. Wouldn't those be the ideal people to have starting your ministry? But no, instead, Jesus chooses fishermen. He goes on to choose a tax collector, one of the most reviled people in Israel at the time. They worked for the Romans. But if we know our Bible, God has done this before. When he chooses Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, he chooses Moses, he chooses David. They've got a lot of great qualities about them, but they are flawed. They keep failing God time and time again. And God keeps rescuing them and raising them up. So isn't that great that God chooses these flawed people? Because otherwise, where would any of us be? None of us started as people who were respected by the community or well-spoken or well-educated. All of us know that when we go home, we are flawed and failed people. If God chooses, uh, was, was to choose the best and the brightest and most godly, then wouldn't the church be an unattractive place? Because we would think we're not worthy to be there. Thank God that he chose flawed and failed people like these fishermen. Brash and loudmouthed and prone to saying all the wrong things just like Peter. Thank goodness that we have an example like that, that God chose him. If he chose Peter, then perhaps I have a chance. So when we move into the passage, we see that Jesus demonstrates his power. You see the miracles and healings lead people to flocking to Jesus to hear his message. They lend credibility, or we see elsewhere, that they lend credibility, they tell people that Jesus is God's messenger. Jesus is God's chosen one. Jesus is blessed by God. But they also cause a problem. We're going to look down, if you kind of got your passage in front of you, let's look down at verse 35. Jesus rises early to go and pray. Now, Mark speaks surprisingly, I was surprised to find this out, now Mark only speaks of two other times where Jesus goes and prays. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus goes and prays often, um, and we sh I'm sure there are plenty of times where Jesus does go and pray uh, that aren't recorded, but Mark specifically notes three times in his Gospel where Jesus goes and prays. And at those times, those two other times, there is a crisis that Jesus is going to pray about. But here, everything seems to be going swimmingly. He's just started his ministry. He's got some devout followers. Yes, they're rough men, but they're devout to him. And everyone seems to be flocking to him. Now, the disciples at this point must have thought that they had it made. 
They've just been asked to be the disciples. They've been chosen by the guy who is performing miracles like nobody has ever seen. And these are real miracles. Now, there is always some doubt on any faith healing. And there are big faith healers, some of which have been debunked and some of which have had you know, some terrible reputations. But this from Jesus, the sh- just, the sh- in just the sheer volume, no one could have doubted him. And I've spoken about it in other, you know, uh, other sermons about how Jesus, it was beyond, uh, beyond coincidence. It was, there was no way he could have faked some of these, uh, these miracles. So these disciples must have thought, I've got the, the winning ticket. I've got it made. I'm with this guy. We're going to be rich and we're going to be famous. And then they wake up the next morning and Jesus is gone. And you can almost hear the real panic in their voice. The panic that they've lost the golden goose. The, 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 the person who's chosen them. You see here Simon, who is Peter, says, everybody is looking for you. Why aren't you out there doing the things that you do? The amazing thing you're you're doing. And you can understand them. Jesus is healing the sick, casting out demons. Isn't that a great thing? Now, what would you expect Jesus to do next? Yes, let's go and heal the sick. Let's go back and, you know, bring the sick to me, he might say. Instead... He says, let's go to the next town. It's hard to see what the crisis is here, isn't it? It's hard to see what's troubling Jesus. Um, And thankfully, we have the next section which clarifies this. So Jesus goes on to the next town, and he's begged by a leper to heal him. Now, in those days, leprosy was unhealable, um, and leprosy was a death sentence. You were shunned, you were pushed out of the community, you were forced out of the community to live separately, and it was the end of your life. You had no life after that. You were just waiting to die. So Jesus healing this leper in the eyes of the people would have been equivalent to Jesus bringing someone back from the dead. It would have been great publicity for Jesus, and you see that it is. But what does Jesus say to the leper? Don't tell anyone. That's so strange. Jesus says to the leper, don't tell anyone. But the leper can't help himself. If you've ever been healed of something, you know, you've taken off the cast off your broken arm, first thing you do is go out and use it. You go and walk, you you go and run if you can. So the leper can't help himself and he goes and tells everyone. And it's the strange thing that Jesus was the one who said, don't tell anyone. But that's because we are thinking like the disciples. We want Jesus to heal tons of people. We want him to become famous. But now this final verse shows us the reason 
Jesus told the leper not to say anything. It reveals the problem. It reveals the crisis. It reveals Jesus' true nature, his purpose, and why he needs to go and talk to the Father in prayer. Verse 45. But he, the leper, went out to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town was, but was out in, the desolate, out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. You see that previously Jesus had gone to the synagogues. Much like Paul later on, wherever he goes, he goes to the synagogues. That's where the Jewish people meet. That's where the people are most open to listening to the, the, his message. Uh, Jesus previously goes to the synagogue to preach and he astounds people with his preaching. But what's happened now? People are flocking to him so that he cannot go openly to preach in the synagogue, in towns. You see, if Jesus had continued to heal, probably in the first century in the Middle East, there wouldn't have been a sick person in the whole of the Middle East if Jesus had continued healing. And that's a great thing. Healing is a great thing. But what's more important to Jesus? It's the gospel. What's more important to God? It's getting out this good news. And as I said, the gospel is so important because otherwise none of us would be here. None of us would have received this message. The message that needs to go worldwide. What's the most important thing in, in history? It's the gospel. Now this week I was invited to, to Taylor, Taylor's University in Kale. Uh, their book club invited me to talk about the educational value of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, the precise title was uh, Promoting Critical Thinking and Intellectual Curiosity Through Playing Dungeons & Dragons. It's, it's a very niche topic, I know. Um, the audience is small, but they, uh, hopefully I interested them. I'll, uh, you know, um, but I'm passionate about it because I'm passionate about education. I love, you know, the more I'm... Uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons with young people, the more I'm seeing how it's opening them up. It's teaching them critical thinking, intellectual curiosity, it's teaching them creativity and leadership and teamwork. I could, I could get one. You, you get the idea. This is why I'm passionate about it and this is why I like talking about it. Education is one of the most important things to me. It's one of those big bubbles. This is why I'm a teacher. I'm passionate about being a teacher. And it's not just maths. I do love maths. But it's about thinking, getting students to reason and think and question. Okay, this is why I get so frustrated when you know, people come to me and they've been taught maths by method. You do this, this is the way you do it, boom, 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 one step, one, two, three. I want them to understand it and question it and see what happens when things go wrong and have the tools to know what goes wrong. So you can see that I'm, I'm passionate about uh, uh, education. And education is a very good thing. But I've been praying and I've been struggling over the last few months about how I can serve God and 
make that my greater priority. Now, as a teacher, it's great because um, I know that God is using me in schools and that God is making, uh, helping me to be a witness in schools. If, uh, if I wasn't able to witness in schools, then I, uh, the, my school, then I would move on to a different school. I know somebody who was working in a school uh, and running the Christian union in that school and the chaplain came in and said, no, I want to run it and didn't allow this guy to run anything and actually complained when this, this guy uh, went and started a Bible study and complained to the headmaster, complained when this guy was uh, reading with, with parental permission, reading one-on-one one -on -one with one of the boys. And so this guy unfortunately had to leave the school, well, decided to leave the school because he felt that he couldn't do any ministry in this school. And he went on to become, uh, actually went on to become a policeman, uh, and then now has come back to, to teaching. Um, but I've been struggling with this idea of how my passion for Dungeons and Dragons can be used to serve God. Now, it's not the first time that I've struggled with this. When I was a boy, when I, was, uh, I actually started playing when I was about nine or ten, and I became really passionate about it. I loved it. It was great for escapism. I've always loved fantasy stuff, and I still love fantasy stuff. Um, but it was in the 80s, and my, uh, my mum got a little bit worried because of the bit of satanic panic. Uh, that was what the kind of thing was called. Um, she had heard that... Yeah, dragons and kind of these things were dangerous and she banned me from playing um, and uh, sorry uh, as a typical kind of young young man I, who where I loved something I continued to play in secret um, and um, the thing is I eventually in uh, after the next couple of years I I did choose to give it up I chose to give it up uh, not because, as my mum believed, that dragons are evil and they'll convert you and become, you'll become evil because of it. I actually think I've written an article about how Dungeons & Dragons can actually promote moral values, but um, the fact was I was obsessed with it. I was spending every living moment thinking about it and how I could you know, do more of it. And that was interfering with my studies and my Christian life. And so when I gave it up, it felt awful. It was such a wrench. It felt like, as the Bible says, cutting off an arm or gouging out an eye because it was so very much part of me. It defined me and it opened me up. A few years later, this, the same situation happened. Now, this was even more uh, interesting because this was um, when I was leading worship. So I was leading the singing in my teens group and in university and I was actually being uh, kind of um, prepared to be a worship leader within the Chinese church and I had to make a choice because I was starting to go to this other church an evangelical church where I received a lot of really good teaching and there's the Bible studies there and I was getting too busy to do both and I had to make this decision and again I felt that God was telling me that you have to give this up. And now, forgive me those people who, the, the worship team, because I'm not saying that you need to give up leading worship or singing, because I think that's a great thing. But at this time, God was saying, you, this is something that you have to give up. 
And again, I was, I was obsessed. And it, I, it was very much part of my character. I felt part of my personality, my very being at this time. And again, it felt like I was cutting off you know, just part of myself. I was quite a shy teenager, and, and doing this was amazing because I, I actually then gained the confidence to get up and, and talk to people and lead people. And I knew that I was gifted in this, not gifted terribly in singing. I know I've got, had some compliments about my singing, but generally, I sing loudly and generally hit the right tone, uh, notes, generally, not always. Uh, when I sing loudly and hit the wrong notes, everyone around me knows. Um, but most of the time I hit the right notes. And I can also have, I do have a sense of where the, the con congregation or the, where the people I'm talking to uh, are emotionally. Um, now, years later, after giving up uh, this leading the singing, uh, God has shown me that, uh, that uh, he prepared me for teaching and the same gifts were used in teaching. And I would like to think the same uh, gifts are used in, in preaching now. So God was preparing me and using that in me. And uh, it could be the same with that time where I had to give up Dungeons and Dragons to prepare me later to warn me about that obsession. We can only tell sometimes after time, but we, sometimes we have to trust God. But do you see that at times God may ask you to give up something that is very good, you think is serving God, even serving God, for his greater purpose? I had an ex-girlfriend who asked me about something and I, I gave her the advice um, that she should give up uh, serving food and drinks before and after the service. Now she was on the serving team, my, uh, my church had food and drinks before and after the service and that was a great thing because it made people feel very welcome it gave you an excuse to you know, say to somebody who you've just met let's go and get a coffee uh, it brought in some of the homeless people actually came sometimes I feel just for the food and drink but they stayed for the sermon which is great um, and serving the food and drink we need people to do these things but she's, she said it was interfering with her bringing her friends to the church, going and meeting with her friends and bringing us to the church. And she was very good at that. And so it's prioritizing. What is most important to you? Think of your, the big circles that you made at the start of the service, sermon. What are those big things most important to you? Firstly, would you be willing to give them up for God? Now, that's a terrible thing to say because God's not asking me to give up my family. God's not asking me to give up my friends. Those are really good things. But the other thing is, are you prioritizing those in front of God? Are you prioritizing those in front of God? And I have to ask myself that question. Am I prioritizing my job? my love of Dungeons and Dragons, my love of education in front of God? Or is God asking me maybe to use those to witness for him as a greater thing? I do believe that God asks teachers and doctors and lawyers and people in every job to serve him in those places. 
every time I go to a school, most of the schools I go, uh, have gone to work in have not had Christians who are willing to witness and work with the children in those schools. Thankfully, in British schools you can. I know that in American schools, uh, public schools you can't. I think the same in the uh, Australia, Australian schools. Thankfully, I have been able to. He's asking us to go and use our hobbies. If you love golf, maybe use it to have those conversations because I know that golfers have a lot of time for conversations as you walk around the greens. It's a great sport for that. Uh, I know because my, you know, my friends kind of, uh, you know, who are not in teaching, they, they use it as kind of business things, con contacts. You make contacts or you kind of go out to play golf with your boss and it's a great thing for those conversations and you get to know somebody. But are you prioritizing God and the gospel first? I am not asking you, and uh, I'm not saying that this passage is saying that we need to give up the things that we love. But it's about prioritizing God. You can see here that this is what Jesus is struggling with. He has been given this great gift of healing isn't it a wonderful thing to bring relief and just imagine the joy on these people's yeah, uh, faces in these people's hearts the joy of their families when he heals them he's bro healing broken families he's basically bringing people back from the dead and yes later on he brings people back from the dead but what is more important is the gospel you see, this is all they want. When they clamour to find him, this is all they want. They aren't listening to his message because all they want is healing. Look down at verse 45. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. His ministry is now stifled by the fact that they just all these people just want healing. You see, this tells us of... Uh, all about Jesus' nature and what is most important to him. We, if we are to become more like Jesus, then surely the gospel and spreading the gospel is the most, should be the most important thing to us. Now, practically, what does this look like? It means that we have to think about what we are doing and how it serves to further the gospel. God needs people to serve the church in whatever capacity but if putting out the chairs is your main focus and you're not thinking that it serves the gospel in a greater way then you might want to rethink that if you could serve God in a different way a better way maybe teaching the children uh, about the gospel then that might be a, another calling for you you think about your job, where can you have those great opportunities, great conversations? For one person it might be not going out to, uh, to drink with your colleagues after work. That's a normal thing in British culture, we go to the pub, especially on Friday, Friday afternoons, so we have a drink. It, that could be a great witness to your colleagues and they might think, why is he like this? Uh, why is he different? He seems like a, just a normal, friendly chap. Why is he different? It could be that it's the opposite. 
that you should make those opportunities because when you go for a drink uh, on a Friday night with your colleagues, you get those chances to have those opportunities for, for conversations. So we need to be thinking about where we are prioritizing what we are doing and obviously praying about it. Jesus goes and prays and pleads with God here. Show, show me the right way. How is healing balancing with preaching the gospel? Healing was essential to confirm God's, uh, God's blessing on Jesus, to bring people in. But how is this going to be balanced against Jesus preaching the gospel? Let me pray. Father, we pray that you give us wisdom. Wisdom to know how best to serve you. Lord, we, I pray for passion for this church, for passion for your gospel that spills out into passion for life and passion for everything that we do so that people can look at us and question and see you in us. We get those opportunities. Lord, pray for boldness to take those opportunities. It's so scary to make those steps to talk to our colleagues, our friends, our family about you. How can we claim that you are center of our lives? How can we claim that you are most important to us when we don't do that, we don't talk to our friends? So Lord, we pray that you continue to challenge us, that you give us strength, you give us boldness, you give us confidence, you help us to love our friends, our family, our colleagues enough to share the gospel with them. For you have saved us, Lord. You have given us eternal life. You died for us. You sacrificed your son to bring us to you. And hopefully, hopefully we will see our friends, our family and our colleagues in eternity with us as you've promised. In Jesus' name, Amen.